Before you listen to this podcast, just a quick word on some special offers for PTO listeners. For a short time only, new $8 patrons can get a free copy of Bhaskar Sankara's The Socialist Manifesto and a 50% discount on a one-year subscription to Tribune magazine. New $5 patrons can get 50% off a Tribune subscription and all new $3 patrons of the show can get 70% off any new ebook from Repeater Books. Their many excellent titles include Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization by Grace Blakely, K-Punk, The Collected and Unpublished Writings of Mark Fisher, and Abolish Silicon Valley by Wendy Liu. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Troy Vitess. We spoke about the sixth mass extinction event and how Karl Marx's concepts of real and formal subsumption are relevant to the ecological crisis. And we also spoke about how the COVID-19 pandemic illuminates Troy's argument. Before we get to today's interview, just a quick word on another podcast that you might enjoy. Radicals in Conversation is a monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. Each month on Radicals in Conversation, leading academics, authors and campaigners sit down to discuss the issues that matter the most, offering left-wing perspectives on current affairs, grassroots campaigns, political theory, history and much more besides. Previous guests on the show have included Tithi Bhattacharya, David Olasoga, James Meadway, Dilar Dirick and members of the Stansted 15. You can subscribe today through your usual podcast platform or app, and PTO listeners can also get a special 50% discount on their next order through plutobooks.com. Just use the code PTO50 at the checkout. Troy Vitesse is an environmental historian and a research fellow at Harvard University. He works on environmental history, animal studies, and eco-Marxism. His writing has appeared in N Plus One, Jacobin, New Left Review, and In These Times. Our conversation was prompted by Troy's essay, A Marxist Theory of Extinction, from issue 7 of the journal Salvage. At the start of your essay, you note that, from the perspective of earthly life, capitalism differs little from colliding with a massive meteorite. Could you maybe flesh that out and just explain the scale of the mass extinction event that we're living through? Well, there's been five other mass extinction events, and most of the time it destroys between like 50 to like 90% of life on Earth. And we're going through that right now, where we expect by the century's end to lose about half of all species. So, and we're definitely on track to do so. And we've lost, so far, like the background rate of extinctions is a thousand times normal, at least maybe 10,000 times. So, Many species are dying all the time. We're living through a catastrophe that it's similar in scope in many ways to what happened 66 million years ago when a meteorite crashed into the Earth. So I think 
we should be talking about capitalism on this kind of scale of, of devastation to, to life on earth. And I think that's, I think if you live in a city and, you know, you just go to a park and you don't really notice what's going on, right? And I think we kind of, we think about the environmental crisis as either about climate change or something else, but I think the sixth extinction should really be taken seriously and be taken seriously by Marxists as well, by people who really care about, about capitalism. This is something that's very unusual that's going on in the history of, you know, life on earth and the history of humanity's relations with the rest of creation, right? And I get into that analogy with what's happening now to the last extinction event to hopefully shock people and also think about how quickly it's happening as well. Because that extinction event happened rather quickly, obviously, of a huge like, 14-kilometer-wide asteroid hitting or meteorite hitting the Earth versus other events where they take like 20 you know, 10 million years to play. Like, this is happening very fast at a geological scale as well. I guess it's unprecedented. And I, I kind of imagine that one response there might be to what you've just said from somebody who isn't of a, a left-wing or a, or a Marxist orientation would be to say, well, extinction events aren't specific to capitalism necessarily. You point in the article, in fact, to the extinction of megafauna that happened thousands of years ago. We know that environmental degradation and, and, and species extinction is something we, we, we saw in the Soviet bloc, say, for instance. So why do you think it's, it's correct to focus in on on capitalism? I think, well, I was working on this problem for a while, as in, and I've been moving in environmental circles for a while, and I think people generally didn't have like a real solid framing to explain what's going on, like why is it so bad these days? And certainly the environmental record in many communist countries wasn't great, but I think that should be understood on its own terms. And there's a productivist ethos in capitalism and socialism. That's the same. I think we have to understand what were the ecological and economic factors that were driving problems in the Soviet Union and other communist countries that were quite different in lots of ways from capitalist countries. And some communist countries actually have a pretty good environmental record in some ways. If you look at the Soviet Union, even they had very good public transit, you know, they were very quick to move against lead, you know, poisoning by by getting rid of lead gasoline and paints and all that. Or Cuba is obviously a good example. We have organic agriculture, lots of biodiversity and so on. But I don't want to get too bogged down in that. So I think we can put that for aside. And in terms of the megafauna extinction, and I've done reading really since I published the essay. And I've talked to a friend and fellow environmental historian, Andreas Mom, and he really stresses that the whole idea of megafauna extinction is not as obvious as, as it might look. Or like the logic is very appealing in a way, as in you have a bunch of extinctions that map quite neatly onto when humans go to different continents. But it's more complicated than that, and the theory has several problems, whether it's like a lack of large kill sites, or even like the scale of the killing is quite hard to imagine being carried out and certain timings don't work out very well. So it probably is more complicated than just people having a natural tendency to kill things, which is the megafauna extinction. So then, and if these things aren't true, right, as in if it's not natural for us to wipe out animals, then we need to think about what's going on now. And I think we also have to stress that extinctions were relatively rare in human history until quite recently. I mean, people didn't even believe extinctions were possible until a few centuries ago. Like That was a great large debate in the history of science, whether that was actually possible for something to disappear from the earth, which, which tells you how rare it actually was. So 
when people say, oh, this is just like another event, that's not convincing to me. And, I, and another reason why I wrote this essay was and work in the field of animal studies, because this isn't my métier. I mean, I work in more the history of economic regulation of the environment, which is different from, from animal studies. But I got into this because I wasn't content as a person who cared about animal and plant life with the framing that you see from groups and uh, that do animal rights work because they tend to be utilitarian and they tend to have not no, no real sense of politics or economics and I find the framework generally not very sophisticated and they tend to be fairly annoying <laughs> on top of everything else in terms of their politics. And no one likes vegans for a reason and I'm a vegan, but <laughs> we, we tend to be pretty obnoxious. And so, and I didn't feel satisfied with the the work being done there. But then again, you go to a lot of lefty groups and they say, well, I mean, they, even with it, even though there's been a big turn toward the eco-socialism, this ecological turn on the left, people still don't care about animals that much, right? And they'll say, well, you know, you need to eat meat or you're being anti-worker or, you know, we care more about animals than like the working class. They'll throw this stuff at you. And it, it was trying to find, I suppose, a way to actually think about this problem using the tools from, from Marxist political economy to understand it, which is, I guess, what underpins this, this essay. That point on the culture of, of veganism, the title of your, your article is A Marxist Theory of Extinction. And obviously that kind of begs the question of what are the alternative theories of extinction? And presumably within the culture of veganism and, and perhaps much more broadly, it's far more that, that focusing in on, on human agency rather than thinking about capitalism, but thinking about humanity in general. And that's why people drag in things like the megafauna events. Yeah, so I think there's probably a few ways of thinking about it, which would be in terms of like this universal killer, you know, figure from the megafauna debates. Another thing would be uh, probably the the most common would be something like tragedy of the commons, as in if it's not owned by someone or there's no like authority regulating the use of natural resources, we will inevitably exploit them until they're ruined in some way. So as in, it's like almost like a theory of property rights, if there were property rights for animals, then maybe we wouldn't have uh, extinctions. So I think that's generally how people think about these problems. And they, you know, lots of people accept the tragedy of the commons framework. It's probably one of the most cited essays of all time. Mm. This is by Garrett Hardin. Yeah, and he's a pretty nasty guy. I mean, he was a full-on white nationalist without exaggerating anything. I mean, he wrote for white nationalist newspapers. I mean, his his writing is full of this kind of xenophobia, especially towards the global south and Latin America especially. And during the famines in Ethiopia in the 1980s, he was just openly saying, you know, let them starve and, and all this. So clearly, like a really ugly guy. I was a teaching assistant recently, a couple of years ago, and we taught Garrett Hardin and Tragedy of the Commons, and they actually took out all the bits where he attacks the welfare state and attacks, you know, like the breeding by poor people as the problem, right? They took they actually took that out of the text, even though it's quite a short essay, and then they presented it just as, well, that's how it is, kids, you know, that's how they taught it. So, I mean, there was no criticism in the environmental studies department where I was working. So, definitely, this is probably the main way people think about extinction. In terms of Utilitarians, I'm not exactly sure 
what they're thinking in terms of what, why are we treating the earth so brutally? And probably it is some kind of mix of ignorance and we're not, not properly weighing the, you know, weighing concern for, for animals as well, right? Something to that, probably just kind of ignorance argument. But that's, again, that, to me, that's not very convincing. The other approach to, to looking at this question is, is from a neoliberal perspective. And, and the, the way you describe it in the article is very striking in, in its brutal callousness that nature is, is entirely viewed as a resource to be used and there is no inherent value attributed to, to, to nature or to, to animals at all. Is, 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 that, is that an accurate description? Well, the neoliberals are an interesting bunch, right? So I think they're not your typical conservatives where they're just like rah, 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 you know, the free market. I mean, they do love the free market, but they're also, they also acknowledge that the market has certain tendencies or it is unpopular or, you know, needs a strong state to support it. So, I mean, they're, they're not... They're not your like, a typical like businessman's conservative, right? So I think a person would read Garrett hard and say, well, if we only be privatized, let's say like cheetahs or I don't know what, then they w- things would be fine, right? Or in the case of whales, you know, if they were just owned by like, the Japanese, you know, whaling companies, then there'd be no no problem. And what's interesting is there was this um, group of neoliberals in Vancouver in the 1950s, the 70s, and 80s, and they were working quite seriously about fisheries and and uh, dealing with natural resource scarcity when it came to overfishing. And there was this one mathematician there, a guy named Colin W. Clark, because there's another economist named Colin Clark, so not him, but uh, this less famous Colin Clark. And he argued, well, if you seriously think about nature as a, a resource, even if it's privately owned, you don't always conserve private property. Sometimes it makes sense as if an old factory to run down your machinery because it's not worth reinvesting in if that market isn't there anymore. You rather just run it down and then invest somewhere else. And that logic applies to privately owned animals. So he was saying if if the future, you know, profits for this are actually going to be less than the the reproductive rate of these animals, then he may as well just kill all those whales now and then invest in something else. So this idea of like natural capital, which people talk about quite a bit, even the the new liberals were much more, I guess, aware and cunning in a way. They, they said this, not necessarily in support of it, but they were aware that what the marketization of animals would lead to, as in it would lead to a very, relatively brutal logic. And they would still support I mean, they don't, they, they're they very much afraid of the environmental movement actually constraining the market, right? So they have these discussions amongst themselves, which are more honest than what they say facing outwards, because facing outwards, they would say, yeah, let's have like a biodiversity market, let's have like a biodiversity bank and offset markets, you know, or uh, similar things for, I say, nature preserves and all that. They, they would support that in the substitutability of different species. But amongst themselves, they're much more honest. And again, much more insightful than what you see from someone like Hardin. If we think about a particular form of exploitation of the natural world, so you, you talk about, about fishing, for instance, and, and, you, and you describe the extraordinary quasi-militarization of fishing, where you have these you know, incredible vessels trawling the seas, which, are, as, as you said, they're more like military naval vessels than they are you know, what we think of when we think of fishing. So would you say that fishing as it's, as it's going on today, which 
it's commonly understood that it's unsustainable. And you, you mentioned an, uh, an article in The Economist where they refer to it as, as mining the sea. You know, it, it's not treating fish in any way as a sustainable resource, but it's, it's, it's just exactly like digging coal out of the ground and knowing that it will never be replenished. But I mean, what you're saying seems to suggest that there is a, an economic rationality to that, whereas I think a lot of people would think, well, this is just the effect of the necessity of achieving short-term profit is forcing them to do something that in the long term may be ruinous. It clearly, there is some kind of logic underpinning. And I guess this relates to, I guess, the previous question where the neoliberals, at some level, they realize that their policies are going to be bad for nature, right? And some of them are troubled by that. Like some, like, so my dissertation actually was about neoliberal environmental thought. And so, you know, one guy was a real birder and he really liked going bird watching and all of that. And he was troubled by economic growth and the destruction of beautiful marshes near Toronto where he lived and, and all that. But he also at the same time said, well, if as a society we're going to preserve it, we only have to, we have to act through the market to preserve it. So he felt like a personal loss, but at the same time he had this framework in mind that made him, I guess, accept his loss in some way. So there also... He rather he's more in love with the market than with his birds, basically. But another way to think about it is the neoliberals, they have to at some level say the environment doesn't matter, right? And they do this by resorting to talking about the environment as a, uh, just aesthetics. So it's just, you know, it's, it's like a luxury to have a nice environment. Like, isn't it nice to have clean air or other species and all that? But that's, an, that's a luxury like anything else on the market, right? The, uh, if you want to have, I don't know, like your nails done nice or, you know, a nice suit. I mean, it's, a, it's the same kind of luxury. So they ignore, let's say, the health impacts of environmental problems. They ignore pollution causing a damage to people's health. Instead, it's, it's a aesthetic desire. And similarly, they have to ignore the destruction of the ecosphere and say, we can let the climate be destroyed, but then we'll just have geoengineering that will be fine. So they have to, at some level, they not care about animal rights, but not care about the functioning of the biosphere because they can think they can, entrepreneurs can substitute for it in some way through things like geoengineering. So this is, I think, how they can reconcile the two, but similarly with basically fishing. So when they talk, economist talks about fishing, they're like, yeah, there's no more fish left in the sea. But if you go really deep, if you go a kilometer down, and there's tons of these like weird looking deep sea fish that have like, you know, you know, light sticking out their head and all that. And there's tons of fish down there. Let's eat them. Well, you, actually, they don't want to eat them because they're kind of gross and bony. So you just scoop them up with these super long nets that are gold kilometer down you pick them up you bring them to your fish farm and you feed all these you know nasty fish that you can't sell to you know to fish farmers and then they grow salmon or whatever and then you can eat that instead even though this is not very efficient right but you will keep mining like the next layer of an ecosystem to keep this whole thing going to get this whole thing going you have to ignore the destruction of the ocean, whether that actually is going to affect us in some way uh, or other ecosystems. So that's part of it. But I think this also, when people talk about fishing, they often think about it because they don't say it's that, like, no one thinks that fishing is profitable, right? People don't make that much money. Instead, usually the government has to give all these subsidies to fishers uh, to make it work in this, you know, and the fishers aren't very rich and all that. So it's not really clear who's really gaining, you know, that much from, from this whole thing. And people say, only if only we cut subsidies 
to fishers and the fishing industry, and people say this, I think in Britain as well, but often, you know, they said this, if only then, then we would have the right number of fishers in the sea, and like the market would actually regulate it. I think even critical environmental historians talk like this, right? And I, and I think this is missing still what, what's actually going on, which is why I try to set up a, a different framework to talk about this. Just going back to that point of positing the environment as, as, as a luxury in some sense, does that, do you think, feed into the ability that, that neoliberals have had to pose as, as allies of the working class and to present environmentalism as primarily a kind of, uh, you know, a privileged middle class concern? So when I do my work on the neoliberals, I kind of work on like the, the center layer. So Murawski, he talks about like a Russian doll approach to the neoliberals where you have people in the Montpellerin society and these intellectuals, and there's only like several hundred of them, right? And then you have like a think tank layer around that. And these guys uh, are popularizers and maybe they're not quite as brilliant, you know, and, and all that. And they're more right-wing and partisan and all that. Then you have like another layer of like journalists and politicians and astroturf groups and all that. And my point is within this this topic of neoliberal environmental thought within the the core layer, they actually again there's some nuance when they talk about about nature, right? As, as, a, as this birding neoliberal, but even Hayek himself, he actually came from a family of botanists, right? I mean, and he was quite happy to use biological metaphors for the market, where most I say neoclassical economists use metaphors from physics. The neoliberals actually like to borrow from biology quite a bit. So I think. Within that layer, they they don't they're not really interested in this like uh, kind of like oh the environment is just for like fancy latte sipping yuppies or whatever. Uh, I think it's really those other layers such as Perk, which is a think tank in Montana, especially they're the ones who will be the attack dogs for this kind of stuff. But what's again what's interesting is the nuance at the center. I would say to come on to the core of the article. The key concepts that you introduced to explain the extraordinary scale of the sixth mass extinction event are the concepts of real and formal subsumption, which are derived from Karl Marx's 1864 to 66 economic manuscripts, which are more typically deployed when discussing capital and labour. Could you explain how those those terms are, are usually employed and, and how they're helpful, you think, in, in thinking through the idea of, of, of mass extinction? Well... Formal subsumption. Well, first of all, you think about when, what is capital like before capitalism? And that tends to be in the form of money lending, right? And that means that the, the capitalist is not directly involved in production, right? But once capitalism begins, then you get formal subsumption where the capitalist actually takes charge of production itself. And, and Marx talks about, as he's looking at a guild, and when you have some kind of artisan, and as he, a journeyman is working for a master artisan, then the master artisan, first of all, has to be you know, skilled in the actual technique itself. He has to be teaching this journeyman. They have a certain kind of patron-client relationship that isn't just like employer-employee and all that. And all these, all these layers to this relationship, right? And that's quite different from when a capitalist gets involved in this kind of handicraft production, where the capitalist might not have any skills in, let's say, weaving or painting or whatever it is, and doesn't really care about the, the welfare of their employees now, right? So they can get involved and they can have people work for them, but the 
capitalist at this stage isn't able to actually really change how they work. They're still going to be using the same tools and, and pretty much the same methods and all that. So the capitalist is, that's why it's called formal subsumption, as in they're just like technically in charge of it, but they actually aren't changing how production actually works. Right. So it's a bit like the putting out system kind of thing, like uh, or cottage industry. Like I'll come, I'll give you some you know, materials maybe and you come and I'll come back in a bit and hopefully you have some, I don't know, shoes made for me or I don't know what. But you can work at your own time, at, you know, how you want, when you want and so forth. In terms of real subsumption, that's when the capitalist is really changing how someone works. And they're only able to do that when you have machinery that are as powered by an external source. And that means that first of all, the machine can start having skills of the worker that included within it. So you can start de-skilling your workers. And then also because it's a, a powered machine, you can dictate how fast the worker is going to work as well. So again, people generally talk about this to talk about yeah, the early textile trade and all that. But I wanted to use these concepts to talk about what's going on with the extinction crisis. So yeah, it's a bit of a, uh, I'll try to summarize this quickly enough. But I guess, again, the first thing is thinking about pre-capitalist relations with nature where, again, extinctions were, were pretty rare. And you have to think, well, why were they rare? Well, they were rare because there was no incentive really to extinguish a species, right? I mean, first of all, it would take a lot of work to track down the last one, right? Because they get, they get harder and harder to find. But also, you know, hunters would realize that if they killed the last one, they would have no more. So, I mean, they, it didn't make much much sense. So there'd be very be very few incentives to actually extinguish a species. And then I use the example of the fur trade to kind of think about this. So when you have, again, someone, let's say some First Nations group in Canada and they're hunting beaver and they're hunting deer or whatever. And then, again, there's no incentive to overkill like a species. And, and then suddenly the Hudson's Bay Company shows up and they'll say, we'll give you, you know, kettles and knives and things like that if you work for us, right? And then at that point, it's still only formal subsumption, as in they will work for the Hudson's Bay Company, but the Hudson's Bay Company can't really control their work as well. And that means that they can't actually really increase their profitability besides getting more people to maybe work longer and get more employees. This is what Marx calls absolute versus relative surplus value, right? So with with formal subsumption, you can only increase it like, in, in absolute terms, right? Whereas in, in real subsumption, you can start deploying technology to increase productivity. Yeah, so as in each hour the worker works, if they're more productive because they have more powerful and better machinery, you actually can get more surplus value in that time frame, right? And, but you can't do that under formal subsumption. So then you basically... They're trying to get more people to, to work more. And this will reach a point where the species will become rarer and rarer and maybe will go extinct, right? And then you will try to make a jump to real subsumption. That means that you try to take the animal or plant and, uh, or even bacteria and you, you try to actually reproduce factory conditions. And not every species can survive that. Like, not every species can breed in captivity, say, 
right? But capital will try to do that once it reaches that point as it approaches extinction. So that's why you have fur farms and things like that instead. But just one more thing is that once you actually get to real subsumption, then you can start using all those techniques that you have from like the factory setting that we know pretty well, that you can start using that for this animal production, right? You can start descaling workers and start mechanizing and automating certain parts of production. You know, you can start you know, concentrating animals and getting economies of scale and all that. So all the things that we see in a factory, we see with these industries as well. How widely understood do you think it is that just the scale of factory farming? Because obviously we're all aware of it. We all know that factory farming is going on. But the intense technologization of farming that you describe and the, and the very profound way in which capital is impacting upon life cycles and, and natural systems, do you, do you think that's understood or, or, or not very well? I think people have a vague idea it's going on, but the details are still quite shocking. And I, I think yeah, people don't, want to know because it is a, a horror they kind of can tell it's going to be a horrifying secret and i think people don't maybe don't realize how pernicious really insidious it is i mean like i was and i've been surprised by this and you know i i only became vegetarian when i was 24 you know so i, I can remember thinking before like oh things can't be that bad or maybe they're bad in the u.s maybe not so bad in other places and all that but once you yeah really look at it it's quite horrible and um so one one book that i relied on quite a bit when writing this article was tragedy of the commodity by clausen longo and clark and they were really getting into how uh these fish farms uh become more productive in in various ways and one thing is actually you know, not just through genetic modification, which I think a lot of people know about, as in you're really, you know, you're really getting in there and making a more efficient machine with these animals by changing their genetics, but even through hormonal treatment, right? So if one species, say in a, in a certain species, if one sex is larger than the other, then you actually will pump them for hormones and try to make the gender imbalance skewed towards that sex so you can have you know more fish flesh and all that. But I think when you start thinking about how you're really changing almost every aspect of that creature's life to make it a more efficient machine, then you can really see how the real subsumption is at work and how you're treating animals like machinery. And, and, so, and I suppose with the, the whole argument about extinction is that, again, when you're doing formal subsumption, you're trying to catch as much as you can, and then it will lead to extinction. And, and not every species can jump to real subsumption. But once you get real subsumption going, you can really start concentrating energy and materials towards production, and that will just be causing devastation to the rest of nature, right? And this is what's going on with, with agriculture, with livestock farming. That's the real cause of, of extinction is land use changes, making these gigantic fields for soy and, and maize to feed livestock and all that. I mean, that's the largest single use of land is for livestock feed and, and for pasture. And that's why we are, we're in this crisis. I mean, hunting and climate change matter, but not to the same extent as the livestock industry. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening.
I'll be back next week.